Now, we command you, beloved, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from believers who are living in idleness and not according to the tradition they receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you. This was not because we did not have that right, but in order to give you an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command. Anyone unwilling to work shall not eat. For we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. This is the word of the Lord. I think most adults have had the experience of trying to teach a child how to ride a bicycle. It's difficult to convince the child that the bicycle performs better at greater speed. So you put the child on the bike and you start pushing and you run faster and faster and faster, telling her or him, this is going to work out better. If we go faster, you'll find that you have far better control. Finally, the parent has to release and let the bicycler go. If the bicycler starts to get frightened, he or she pedals less and less, and surely enough, the vehicle becomes unstable, and then you begin to move the, the front wheel left and right, and terrible things happen. One of the jokes at our house is that when Gail was trying to teach Jason how to ride a bicycle, she was pushing him as fast as she could run and telling him that this was going to be better. The faster they could go, the faster they could go, the better this would be. And finally, of course, she had to release and let him go. And he got frightened and the front wheel turned and boom, into a yucca bush he went down in Houston. Yucca bushes have sharp, sharp needles on the end of them. So forever after, if we ever said anything to Jason about, Jason, you could have done that better. He said, what do you expect of a kid whose mother pushes him into a yucca bush when he's trying to learn how to ride a bicycle? This passage today is about keeping on doing the right things. Even when you don't seem to be getting the result you were wanting. Even when there seems to be so much going on in the world that is not right, so much that is not good, uh, the readers of God's book are admonished to keep on doing the right things. In time, God will see to it that right wins out. I have four things I've underlined. We'll run through them pretty quickly. Number one, this I command you, beloved, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Dr. Beverly Gaventa, one of our former Barton Clinton Gordy presenters, holds a distinguished chair in New Testament studies at Princeton Theological Seminary, says, You can tell this passage is important because the author gives you this command, this imperative. I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you do the right things. As Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, not only took bread and wine, but also took a basin and towel and washed the feet of the disciples and then said this, I command you that you love one another. 
that you do the right things, that you do good things, not bad. Mary Cara is a writer who's taken the advice of professors, that is, write about things you know. She's now written three books about her own life. The first of these was called The Liar's Club. It was about growing up in a family where both mother and father were alcoholic, who were living one life out in public and a very different life back at home, of how difficult that was to be a child growing up in that family, and so she called her family The Liar's Club. Her second book was called Cherry. It's about growing up as a teenage girl and on into college. And now her third one is called Lit, L-I-T. Yeah, you guessed it. She became an alcoholic. Amazing how that happens, isn't it? Children who know frustration, hurt, pain, unhappy experiences and grow up and act the same way. When I was a teenage boy, I had a younger sister, younger brother. My mother started taking the three of us to Alateen so that hopefully we would not do what our father had done, that we would not become alcoholic as our father was. And it worked for all three of us wonderfully well. You don't have to do what your parents do if they're doing wrong things, but the tendency certainly is there. It's been proven that children who are abused are more likely to grow up and abuse themselves. And those who grow up in alcoholic families, drug-abusing families, are more likely to abuse alcohol and drugs. So that's what Mary did. And it cost her her marriage. She was left with this one little boy. How was she going to function and live with an alcohol addiction and a little boy whom she loved and wanted to do much better for him than she felt her mother and father had done for her? And one night she walked down into the basement of a church where they were having an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And lo and behold, there was a Harvard scholar who was in that AA group who approached Mary and said after the meeting, Mary, there's several simple steps for beginning this long road back. Every morning, you need to learn to ask God to help you just for today. Help me just today not to drink alcohol that keeps me from doing right and good things. At the end of the day, just before you sleep, you thank God for keeping you sober one day and you thank him for all the good that's come into your life that day. And Mary said, I looked at him and said, but what if I don't believe in God? And this Harvard scholar said, do it anyway. Do it anyway, every morning, every evening, it'll change your life. Well, Mary didn't. And so in a month, she was drunk again. And so desperate this time, she decided to try it. Even though she didn't believe in God, she would talk to him every morning and every night before she slept. And her life began to change. And when she met new people in Alcoholics Anonymous, she would tell them the same. Talk to God every morning. Even if you don't know the one to whom you're talking, even if you don't quite grasp this thing of a power higher than you, talk to it. And before you sleep in the evening, try to think of ten things you have to be thankful for. It'll change your life. She became a better mother. One day her little boy asked if they could go to church. To where? Church, he said. One of his friends goes to church. And so she went with him to a Roman Catholic church. 
For several Sundays she went and she sat through the Mass and it began to feed her. And when her little boy wanted to join a class leading to baptism and confirmation, she agreed to join with him. And by the time the classes were over, she said she was ready to be baptized and confirmed with her little boy. I was ready, she said. If you're not sure you believe at all, do the right things. This I command you, do the right things. It will begin to make sense. Number two, that anyone who is unwilling to work not eat. The key word here, of course, is unwilling. Today in our country, we have an unemployment rate, last report, 10.2%. It's a lot of people, good people, who have no job right now. 10.2% who have no job right now. And how difficult that is for those people and for others who are depending on them, counting on them. This is about people who are unwilling to work. Last Sunday, I told you that I read the obituary columns. I read one recently, just the last couple of weeks, about a photographer, an African-American photographer who was born and grew up in Harlem, New York. He was 89 when he died, so that means he was born 1920. When he was a nine-year-old boy, the Great Depression hit in October of that year. It got worse in 30, 31, 32, 33. Four long years that it just continued to get worse. There was a time when in New York City, and across our country, there were more than 35% of people who were willing to work who had no jobs, who had to line up in bread lines, get a piece of bread, maybe a little cup of soup, maybe an apple for today. Roy de Carava, his name, Roy de Carava, when he got out of high school, his mother and father kept telling it, importance to go to school, go to school, go to school, get an education. He was fascinated with photography and managed to get enough of a job as the country was coming out of depression. He bought him a little camera, took black and white pictures back then, and started taking pictures around Harlem. He did really well. There were people who encouraged him who said, if you'd go back to school and study art, taking great pictures has a lot to do with Art, how you frame something, how you see something, shadows and light and so on. And he went back to school for advanced studies and he took better pictures. First African-American photographer in our country to be made a Guggenheim Fellow. He took pictures all the rest of his life. Many of them have made their way into prominent magazines and into those coffee, book, uh, coffee table kinds of books with beautiful pictures. Pictures he took around Harlem all those years. He said he was trying to capture the dignity of people who were looking for a better way. I saw one of his pictures. It was of a girl graduating from high school. Had her cap and gown on. She was ready to go to the high school commencement. And she was surrounded by the devastation in Harlem. Graffiti, trash, filth. And this young woman standing so tall with her cap and gown, looking for a better day. Another one wanted photographs a bride, a bride in her gown, just ready to go in and meet the groom. And again, all around her, the devastation of her neighborhood. But in her face, hope for a better day, a better day. He took pictures 
of black women waiting for the bus to go to work with a sack lunch in their hand or black men with lunch pails catching a bus or walking long distances for a job. And he said, what I was trying to do was to take a picture of one woman going to work or one man going to work and helping people understand all who go to work, all who go to work to do the right things for the right reasons to bring a better world. Number three, I underline this part. Keep away from believers who are living in idleness. Your moms and dads have probably told you people have too much time on their hands. Don't hang around with boys and girls who have too much time on their hands. They get into trouble. It's better to stay busy. Beware of people who don't have enough to do. As I was preparing the sermon this week, I came across a new autobiography written by Roy Williams. Basketball fans knew who Roy Williams is. For 15 years, he was head coach of the Kansas Jayhawks basketball team, and then he went home to his alma mater, North Carolina. He's been there six years. He is the only active coach today who has taken 20 consecutive teams to the NCAA tournament and won at least one game in all 20 years. He was inducted in the Basketball Hall of Fame. But Roy Williams grew up in Spruce Pine, North Carolina. His family worked for the sawmills. Part of my mother's family worked for the sawmills in St. Augustine County, Texas. And I know if you work long enough around those old sawmills, you lose a finger or three or four, half your hand. It's a hard way to make a living. And Roy Williams in his autobiography says that not only did his family work hard, not only was he afraid that was the only future that was out there for him, but what his father made working at an old sawmill, he drank up on the weekends. Not only did he drink, he got drunk, and when he got drunk, he got mean. And Roy said, when I grew up, I grew up with a drunken father beating on my mother. And finally, when I was a teenager, one weekend, my daddy was slapping my mother around again. And I grabbed one of his beer bottles and stuck it under his chin and said, If you ever hit my mother again, you will be sorry. And his father turned and walked out of the house and never came back. So Roy Williams grew up without a father the rest of the way, but a mother who worked really hard to help put life together for him and his brother. Roy Williams was not the fastest athlete. He was not the tallest, couldn't jump the highest. He just worked really hard. He learned how to coach. He watched what the coach was saying, what the coach was doing. He started out as a high school basketball coach after he had a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in education. And then he had opportunity to go to University of North Carolina to be an assistant coach on staff there with his great mentor, Dean Smith. One of the things he's most famous for is recruiting a guy named Michael Jordan to come and play for North Carolina. And then he got to be coach at Kansas and then on to North Carolina. You know what he calls his book? Hard work. Hard work. You have to work really hard. But if you work hard at the right things for the right reasons, you're making a real difference for good.
Number four, last. This text ends by saying, so don't grow weary in doing what is right. The old King James Version translated it, do not grow weary in well-doing. Do not grow weary in well-doing in doing the right things. Let me mention one more autobiography for you, Andre Agassi. If you watch talk shows in the last two weeks, I think Andre Agassi's made them all. Uh, he was on 60 Minutes last Sunday night. Uh, he was on David Letterman. He's been on Jay Leno. He was on uh, Today's Show. He was on Good Morning America. He's hawking his new book. His first book, and it's called Open. Andre Agassi. Too old for you confirmands, but your mothers and fathers remember Andre Agassi. You may not know that he is Iranian. His father grew up in Iran. His father's family were Christians. Christians are minorities in Iran. Muslims are majorities. And so, Andre said, when his father went to school, he was bullied, shoved around, pushed, fought by Muslims, and he grew up fighting. And finally got so good at fighting and defending himself, he became a boxer. And finally, the opportunity came to come to the United States of America. He was married, became the father of two little boys. Andre was one of those. They lived in Las Vegas, Nevada. And Andre, the father decided, had one ticket out, learned to hit a tennis ball. Andre writes in his book, I hated tennis when I was three, and I hate tennis now. But my father decided it was my way out, so he put a court in the backyard, and he made me hit tennis balls from the time I finished breakfast until I went to bed at night. He rigged up a machine that would fire that ball at me, and he made it stronger and more powerful until it would fire the ball 110 miles an hour when I was five years old. And my father would stand there and scream at me, hit it harder, hit it harder, hit it harder, hit it harder. He said, at 14, my father encouraged me to drop out of school. You're not going to be a doctor, he said. You're not going to be a lawyer. You're not going to be a professor. You're not going to be a rocket scientist. Your ticket out is to hit a tennis ball. Get out of school, hit a tennis ball. He was developing some real skills. When he was four, he got to hit the ball back and forth across the net with Jimmy Connors. When he was seven, he met one of the greatest football players ever named Jim Brown. Somebody said to Jim Brown that day out in Las Vegas, I hear you're playing tennis now. Well, they said, I play for fun. There's a seven-year-old kid right there can beat you. Jim Brown said, there's never been a seven-year-old kid could have beat me at anything. The guy said, I'll bet you 500 bucks he can beat you. Jim Brown got on the court. Andre Agassi beat him and took his 500. But he hated it. He hated it. He said once he was sent to Seoul, South Korea, to play in a big tournament there, he was so homesick he thought he would die when he got off the plane in Las Vegas. After the tournament, his father was waiting to drive him home. He ran and threw his arms around his father, and he said his father showed no emotion whatsoever. He just stiffened as this kid threw his arms around him. Sports writers started calling him the punk. He grew his hair longer. He started playing in acid-washed jeans, denims, rather than the white that most people were wearing to play tennis back in those days. The punk. The punk. 
He turned pro at 16. He won Wimbledon at 22. He won eight of the Grand Slam tournaments, but he hated it. His hair started falling out when he was 17. He said, all that beautiful hair that the young women liked so much. He married Brooke Shield. It was an unhappy marriage. didn't go well. And then he gradually fell in love with Steffi Graf. They were married, had two little children. And in his book he said, I always write to my children if I'm away. I write to them and tell them how I miss them, how much I love them. And I can hardly wait to take them in my arms when I see them again. I'm trying. He said, I'm trying. He's built a school in Las Vegas for children who are marginal, who have no money. And it's going really well. And he ends by saying, I was not a punk. I was just lost. And I didn't know how to get home. Amen. Amen.